this morning, our passage of Scripture, it really changes scenery. Uh, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. He had been cleansing the temple. He'd already done that. He's been teaching, meeting with Nicodemus. Y'all still greet one another. Okay. <laughs> Samuel back there. He'll greet everybody. I love it. His ministry was growing in popularity. And we get to like chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll go ahead and give you a second there to turn there. John chapter 4, verse 1. It's still is an introduction. I just wanted to point out something to you. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, I think it's here that we begin to see that the Pharisees getting more and more concerned now with Jesus' ministry. It's on the up and up. His popularity is growing. He has been teaching. He's been around Judea and Jerusalem. And he's growing and gaining in popularity. And I think the Pharisees by now in verse 1 of chapter 4 had taken note of that. So Jesus takes off the Galilee. And I don't think, by the way, it's a good note. I think jealousy is beginning to set in. And you know the rest of the story, that sooner or later they're going to be beginning to hate him and who he represents. He is God. And they're going to believe he's a heretic. And they're eventually going to kill him. But you see that really in its inception right here. Uh, but as now he's on his way to Galilee. We learn that also in these first couple of verses. But here's the peculiar thing. On his way to Galilee, there's this region called Samaria. Let me talk about that for a minute. Samaria had been part of the northern kingdom. Okay, the northern kingdom of Israel, which fell to the Assyrians in 722. It's important that we understand a little bit about the background of Syria in order to understand Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well that took place in Samaria. So what Assyria typically did when they would conquer a country is that they would pull out most of the people and put them into exile. But they would also replenish that area, that geographical area, with people from other lands. Okay? And there were a few Jews that were left there in Samaria back in 722. And over the years, they intermarried with Gentiles. Okay? And so the Samaritans, that's how they became known amongst Orthodox Jews being unorthodox or being unclean Jews. And so the Orthodox Jews from Jerusalem and Judea from which Jesus came did not like Samaria. As a matter of fact, it was so bad, they were so unclean, they would go around Samaria to get to Galilee because they didn't want to get defiled by that defiled land. Okay? And so that's where we're at. But Jesus, on the other hand, as we look at these verses, what does he do? Him and his disciples cut straight through to go to Galilee, knowing that they have to go right through Samaria. It would be like someone wants to go from one side of New York City to the other side, and they got to go through Harlem to do it, right? No, no offense, but you get the picture, right? Or through Concord, whatever part of town, pigmentation doesn't matter, does it? Amen? No. And we're going to find that out in this story. If one thing is pretty clear, nothing matters to the Lord except what's on the inside. Amen? So let's stand together and read verses 1 through 26. I know it's a large part of Scripture. It's a large passage that we're tackling today, but we have at least till 2 o'clock this afternoon. So no problem there. Follow with me, if you will. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 26. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, showing his humanity there, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means about noon, the heat of the day. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Parenthetical statement, John says, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. That is pointing to the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Then Jesus said to her, You've correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to, her, said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that it noticed a change real quickly and abruptly, the tension away from her own sin, now onto something else. We typically do that, don't we? Sir, I perceive, verse 19, that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is such an eye-opening passage of Scripture. We know it is written for John's ultimate purpose that we might believe, continue believing that Jesus is the Christ, that people in the world, throughout the world, would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the incarnate Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom that you would teach us from your word Jesus' approach to different kinds and types of people. Not because of how they look on the outside, but because they all have the same need on the inside. Because we're sinners. Jesus, we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Thanks for listening to that rather long, lengthy passage of Scripture. I want to pick up in verse 6, okay? Basically, we already talked about in brief, verses 1 through 5, to give you a little bit of the context. But right now, it's the sixth hour. It's around noon. It's very hot. It's very the heat of the day. And the disciples have left Jesus. They went to go get some food. So he's there alone, and he's next to this well, and he has nothing. He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have anything to draw water with. And this woman comes along. And, by the way, he's in Samaria. Most Jews would have walked around Samaria. Okay? Definitely the, 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 the religious elite, the religious would have walked around okay, Samaria. But Jesus cuts right through. Usually, there's something strange here, because usually a woman would not, number one, go to the well by herself. She would go with a group of women for protection. Number two, she would go early. Not in the heat of the day, but in the cool of the morning to get water for the rest of the day. So something strange is going on here. Something more about this woman is brought to light in relationship to what I just said. And it is this. She was not just an outcast, a Samaritan outcast, but she was an outcast amongst the Samaritans. You see, later on in this story, what do we learn? That she had five husbands and the man who she's with right now is not even her husband. The live-in boyfriend, okay? That's what is basically what the Greek is saying there. So here's the thing. The women wanted nothing to do with her because of her lifestyle. They knew her. That was her reputation, and they knew her. And so she went by herself. She wouldn't go in the morning with a group of women or go there with them because she had already been shunned, I think. And most commentators would agree because of that context, already shunned by other Samaritan women. She was all on her own. Even amongst Samaritans, she was treated as unclean. Not just by the Jews, but by Samaritans. She was looked upon as being one of the dirtiest of the dirtiest. Immorally. The hopeless, the helpless. Kind of a person you look on the news or you see and you go, oh, I really don't want to have anything to do with that kind of person. Look where they've been. Look how they act. Look how dirty they are. They don't keep themselves up. You know, that kind of thinking. Furthermore, Jesus, now in that context, Jesus had nothing to draw water with. And yet he asked her for water. So think about it. What would he drink the water from? Her own bucket. This is incredible. I mean, he, has, he would have to drink from this defiled, unclean bucket. We know, according to Mark 7, that the, that the religious Jews, the Pharisees, they would wash their utensils before and after they ate. And here is Jesus, had nothing to wash his bucket with, but it was just a bucket from a Samaritan woman who was living this immoral lifestyle. She, he was truly unclean person, and yet he was going to drink from her bucket as she would reach down and get it out of the well and draw it up. He would have to drink from the bucket, her bucket. He had to use hers. So, so knowing he was a Jew, coming from her perspective, he had, knowing that he had nothing to draw with, that she was a woman, and they were not even looked upon very highly in the day, oftentimes as property, okay? It was a shock that he asked her. Stop right there. Listen to me. This must scream something about our Lord's character.
Okay, we got the character of the Samaritan woman, but what about the character of our Lord, which we, the church, are to emulate, right? First, he showed no partiality. Write that down. To follow in the footsteps of my Lord, I am not to be partial or show favoritism to anybody. Let me remind us right now that on the heels of this story is Jesus' encounter and conversation with who in chapter 3? Nicodemus. Compare and contrast these two conversations. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He was respected and well-known. He was a man, highly regarded, a leader of the Jews. And all of a sudden, the next chapter, days later, Jesus is now having this conversation with this Samaritan woman whose theology was unorthodox, if not heretical. It was really heretical. You know, they, they worshiped at Gerizim as opposed to Jerusalem. And, and by the way, Samaritans, they only held to the five Old Testament books, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the prophets, okay? And so when it came to First Chronicles chapter 17, when David decided to build a temple at Jerusalem, they didn't believe that. So that's why they could build words. That's why they could worship at Mount Gerizim. That's where that comes from. So they didn't believe that because it's First Chronicles, and they didn't hold to that as being the Bible, only the, first, only the, the books of Moses, and so they really had messed up, incomplete theology. Not only that, her lifestyle, as we all know. We're familiar with this, right? Marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. If they had it, if it was that way, we don't know the details of it. But even the man she, she was presently living with at that moment, what? Wasn't her husband. Not only that, the woman's customs and the practices were totally different than Nicodemus's. I mean, the woman was an outcast. Nicodemus wasn't an outcast. He was well-received and liked by almost everybody, right? Their cultures were different. Their practices, their customs were different. Everything was so different about them. The contrast is like incredible. They're, they're polar opposites. But everything I mentioned up to this point is external. Because what they had common in common was what was on their heart. You see, no matter what a person looks like or does on the outside, we all have the same SIN virus. And that's what Jesus addressed with Nicodemus. And that's what he's going to address with the Samaritan woman. So Jesus shows no partiality, no favoritism. As a matter of fact, what he's doing is he's walking and being an example of John 3.16. Listen to these words. Listen very carefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever. Stop right there. This is the whoever. Whether it's a Nicodemus or a Samaritan woman, it's whoever. Whoever. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 2 for a moment. James chapter 2. I want to walk you through this passage. And I think it's very relative. Because James in chapter 2 talks about favoritism and partiality. And the church, this is an early letter. This is one of the first letters written in the New Testament. And it's very Jewish because the early church started when? Get the picture of this now. It's the church, the the saints of Jerusalem have scattered. But these are Jewish Christians, okay? Okay. They're in the dispersia. This has been dispersed. 
and, and, and I think they're, they're tempted to be real careful who they associate with. So now they're being very partial and show, showing favoritism. So you get to chapter 2, verse 1 of James, and we read this, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude. That's where it always begins there, doesn't it? With an attitude. It always begins with the, the big A, the attitude. Of pers- this time of personal favoritism. And then James gives, a, gives an illustration, 2, 3, and 4, about a rich man coming into your assembly, and, oh, you pay special attention to him. Well, how do you know he's rich? You look at his shoes. They're nice ones. You look at what he's wearing. You look at how he handles himself. You know this person has some money. You know he's special. You know he's successful in whatever field he, he, he's in. And so you say, come over here. Let's sit up front. With the good people. Not the bad outsiders, yes. Now, here's a question I have for this text. Does this apply to, it says the brethren, people coming into the church, because that's the illustration, or does the application go beyond that? I think it goes beyond that to evangelism. I think sometimes we look upon people and we look the way they look. We look at their culture. We look at their, their, the house they live in, the job they have. And we go, or we look that they might have a criminal record. And then we go, well, I'm not going to share the gospel with that person. There's no hope for them. It's kind of what's going on here. Verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. Sit here in a good place. There it is. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And in verse 5, listen, listen. My beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Look at verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. How have they, how have they dishonored the poor man by honoring the rich man? You get that? You can be neutral with a poor person, but if you honor... The rich man, you are disrespecting the poor man, dishonoring him. Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the rich people? It was typical for them back then. to They, they, they would blaspheme the name of Christian, a Christ follower in verse 7. Let's go to verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, what is that? He's going to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but... Contrast, contrary, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. In other words, you are failing. You're being disobedient to the law. You shall love your neighbor. You're not doing it. You're breaking the law. You're a transgressor. You're only loving certain kinds or types of people and personalities. You're showing favoritism. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. Maybe Nicodemus would fall under the first part of that. He's only guilty in maybe one little small area or two. This woman was guilty across the board. But here we learn, you break the law at one point, one little smidgen of one of those commandments, and God sees you guilty of the whole thing. Why? Stop right there. Why is that? Because God is holy. And God demands perfection and holiness to be in his presence. That's why Christ came. He lived the perfect, holy life. This is the good news, the gospel. 
so that when he got up on that cross and died, that the Father would raise him from the dead. Why? Because the Son is holy, holy, holy. And that is the holiness we need to be justified before a holy God. Not the holiness that I produce in my obedience to Christ, but I need this foreign, alien righteousness that comes from God himself. That is the holiness by which one is justified. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is his blood that cleanses us from our sins. That makes us white as snow. And part of that snow is that white garment that God is going to put on every one of his children. And that white garment is the righteousness of Christ. In which you will be ushered into God's presence. Into his kingdom. That's our blessed hope, beloved. Well, we go a few verses later. Look at verse 12 and 13 and I'll wrap this up and we'll go back to our main text. He says this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, freedom in Christ. For judgment will be merciless to one who shows no mercy. I love this right here. The last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what's going on in John 4. The mercy of Christ is being triumphant over the sinfulness of the Samaritan woman. We see mercy in the process of being triumphant in real life in this lady's life. Praise God that he is not partial or show favoritism. That's why at the end of the story in Revelation, you see that people from every tongue, every tribe, every language is going to be in heaven. Why is it going to be so multi-different? Why is it going to be so different? Why? 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 Because of God's glory. To be, there'll be no mistake when you get to heaven that everyone is there, is there by the grace of God. It had nothing to do with their background, their ancestry, their works, nothing but the grace of God. That's why we're Grace Community Church, a community of believers saved by grace alone and Christ alone, faith alone. Amen? So let's go back to our main passage, John chapter 4. First of all, he showed no partiality. partiality. Second of all, he sees the heart. You know what? Background, ancestry, culture, customs, looks, weight, those things don't matter at all to God. He looks right through them to the heart. That's what's going on. That's what we see in the contrast between Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman. The knowledge of Nicodemus didn't fool Jesus. That he was a religious leader didn't fool Jesus. Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed him. And the same with the Samaritan woman. Pigmentation, dress, mannerisms, practices, customs. And I'm just trying to think through this during the week. Outward appearances. Here's the bottom line. We all come from dirt. Genesis chapter 2. Right? Out of the dust of the ground. We come from dirt. Now, God breathed life into us. <laughs> praise God. That's why we have a soul. That's why we have a spirit. 
That's why there's a God consciousness. That too is by the grace of God. It's a gift of God. And sin came in and just totally distorted it, mangled it. They both needed the Savior because they were both sinners. It's pretty plain and simple, isn't it? Listen, here, I want to wrap this up, this part up. Listen to this. Nicodemus, listen to this. Nicodemus was not so good that he did not need Christ. The Samaritan woman was not so bad, Christ could not save her. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 10 of chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She was confused. Why would you ask me, verse 9, for a drink? And then he goes, well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a different kind of drink. That's verse 10. You know, this is what the whole story is about. If you could pin one verse down that's representative, I think, of this whole story, it is this verse, verse 10. If, if you know who Jesus is, you know he's the Messiah, you'll know he's the gift of God, and you know what he offers, eternal life. In verse 10, living water is representative of eternal life. Make no mistake about it. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him, that living water shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, a well of an endless well, an endless spring of water that leads to eternal life. You, in other words, Jesus is saying this: the water I give you will always satisfy you. Are you satisfied in Christ alone, or do you look to get satisfaction in other places as well? Is Jesus someone you treat to give you some satisfaction and you also get it over here and get it over here and get it over here? Christ is saying right here, I am your satisfaction. I want to be your satisfaction. God doesn't want us to get satisfaction in anywhere else, any place else, anyone else but him. And even when God blesses us with physical things, he wants to remind us that I'm the giver of those things. Get your satisfaction in not what I give you, but in the giver who's behind all those things that I have blessed you with. But look at verse 11 and 12. The woman did not understand. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. I'm the one that has the bucket. You don't have a bucket. And this well's deep. I've been here before, she's thinking. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Because that's the the reputation. That's how old this well was, and that's the area of Jacob's well. Jesus said to her, verse 13 and 14, he's explaining to her, "Let let me explain now. Let me go a little bit deeper here. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical water from a physical well. I'm talking about water that springs forth eternal life. And so we read that in verse 13 and 14. But whoever drinks the water that I will give shall never thirst. In other words, you're always satisfied. And that just blows me away. You know how do you know if you're always satisfied with Christ? You keep coming back to him. If you don't go back to Christ, you're, you're, you're living a life that says I'm not satisfied with Christ. 
He's not you nibble him a little bit and see if he tastes good and you walk your own way. He's, you know, it's like, it's like Ruffles potato chips. I guarantee it, men in particular. I'll just stay with this as a man. This is a man, not a woman illustration. This is a man illustration for myself. You open a bag of chips and you just take one little chip out and you wrap that bag up and put it back. You can't do it. Why? Because you're not satisfied with one little chip. You've got to keep putting your hand in that bag. If you're like me, you do. And you keep, right? That's, that's kind of the idea here. Yeah, even after 10, you keep, I can't. I, I get, don't go there. I'm going to shame myself in front of everybody. Oftentimes that bag's empty. I throw it away. Anyway, okay, we'll keep going. Thanks, Danita. <laughs> yeah. oh, so he explains himself in 13 and 14. Yet verse 15, look, she still doesn't get it. The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's still thinking physical water. So what does Jesus do in verse 16? He changes his... He tries to say, I'm going to go. This is another approach. In verse 16, he says, go get your husband. Jesus sees she's not getting it, so I'm going to change the subject. We're going to try another way, another approach, and this is the one we should always try with people. We must try this. It's not because it's going to fail or not. It's because he knows he needed to go here to begin with. Look at this. You see, she could not see the kind of water she needed unless she saw her need for that kind of water. And so he goes to the heart of the issue, and he reveals her sin to her. Wow. He directs her attention to her sin. Listen, listen. People will not see their need for the Savior if they do not see their sin issue, their sin problem for what it really is. And I don't mean sugarcoat it. Sin leads to death. For the wages of sin is Death, right? A death that I can't bypass. I, I, you know, I'm 56. One of these days I'm going to die. I can't escape that. It's inevitable. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I've got sin. This body is not going to make it to heaven. But in Christ, I have new life. So I know that when this body dies, I'm still going to what? Live. That's eternal life. You see, if we only talk about the good news, if we only talk about we have peace with God through Jesus, and we don't address the sin issue, then we only present Christ as an add-on to our lives, as if he's one of many things that we need to be happy. And that is not the true gospel. We treat him, the gospel we reduce to whose only purpose, Jesus' only purpose is therefore to make our lives better in the here and now. You've heard that one before. You see, in the gospel presentation, we've got to address the sin issue. To not do that is not to expose the need and to treat Jesus as someone who could just make my life a little bit more comfortable today. And that is not the true gospel. Now, having said that, having exposed her sin in 17 and 18 by exposing her lifestyle, in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So he goes from being a good Jewish man to now, I think you're a prophet because you never met me before. How do you know this? And everything he said was true about her. This is also Jesus and a little bit asserting his deity. 
You see that he comes to the well in his humanity, and he's a little bit thirsty, and he's weary. But now you see a little bit of deity here coming up, okay? He's fully God and fully man. I perceive you're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worship. Notice what she does. You're a prophet. Let's talk about worship. Let's not talk about my sin. (laughs) Do you ever notice that in sharing the gospel? When you get to the sin issue, people, well, let's talk about the big fish in Jonah. Let's talk about the flood in Genesis. Let's talk about all the problems in the church. They divert their attention away from my own sin, their own sin problem when you share the gospel. Here's the master evangelist here constantly bringing your attention back to the main issue, which is him. But the key to getting to him is looking at her own sinfulness because he's the only one that can handle her sin. Amen. He's the mercy that triumphs over the judgment that she deserves because of her sinfulness. So here we have the master just being so patient with this lady and and working with her and and steering and guiding this conversation to, to bring it back to him. But so she mentions worship. So Jesus says, okay, we'll go there for a moment. There's, he doesn't expound on it a whole lot. We only got a couple of sentences here about worship, right? But he uses it. Again, evangelistically. <clears throat> Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Number one, verse 21, in response to her, her idea of worship is this. It's all going to change. Verse 21. It's going to change. Way we, the, where we worship is going to change. Okay? And then number 22, verse 22, number 22. Verse 22, you worship that you do not know. What you do not know, which you, oh, forgive me. You worship what you do not know. We worship. What does he mean by we? Jews worship what they do know. In other words, you're Samaritans. You're unorthodox. You're actually heretical. You're all wrong. Okay? David First Chronicles 17, the temple is in Jerusalem. You're over here. You're wrong, okay? Let's get that straight. The Jews got it right. However, both are going to be unnecessary for the church age. Look at verse 23 and 24. He explains himself, but an hour is coming and now is. Why is that? Because he's here. Here's the king of glory. Here's the creator himself that got off of his throne, the incarnation of chapter 1. Here's God dwelling among sinful humanity. And if anyone has the authority to change how worship is done, it's the one we worship. Wow. So verse 21, make it a little clear as I can here. Jesus said to her, whoever... Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Wow. There's a new order, a new covenant at hand, so to speak. And this new covenant is going to change how we worship. It's going to change where we worship. Verse 22, but you've had it all wrong and the Jews have had it right. What's he doing there? He's upholding the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. He's upholding the Old Testament in verse 22. For salvation is from the Jews. Remember, Samaritans, they weren't, okay? 
And so then in 23 and 24, he gives a little explanation, a subtle explanation of verse 21 of how things will change. But an hour is coming, and he says, and now is, present tense, because I am here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, worship is that which flows from a changed heart. Because you're a new creature in Christ, you have new desires, you have new affections that have been changed by the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has opened your eyes up to the truths of God's Word. Therefore, you receive it for what it is. And it springs forth life in your soul and in your heart. That's why you are born again. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes you alive unto Christ. Remember what we said for many, many weeks now? The greatest miracle is the salvation of a soul because it is the work of God on the heart of a sinner. Amen? But that's not all. That's not all. That's not all that what he was saying here. Let's not miss this simple but yet subtle point. Not only is worship no longer to be offered at a location. It is to be done in the heart and to be done in spirit and in truth. But it means this. It is to be done in and through him. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's why when we worship on Sundays... We, we focus and center our attention on Christ. And the discipline to do that is the preaching of God's word. Because it keeps us grounded in who? Christ. I don't know about you, but every Monday through Saturday, I've got to be grounded in Christ. And Sundays, when we get together, I get that encouragement from you to be grounded in Christ together because we need that because we have not lived a perfect week last week and we've got a week that's coming up on us. And every week's full of distractions, right? Every week, you and I sin somewhere along the line and we need to be focused on Christ. The Messiah is here and now the center of worship. That's what Jesus is saying. Your Messiah is here. He's going to say that in a couple verses. He's going to be point out blunt about it. The Messiah is here. That's why it's not going to be this mountain or that mountain. It's not going to be Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim. It's not going to be any of that. It's going to be in spirit and truth so that you can worship me throughout the week. Whether you're alone in your quiet time with me or you're together in the congregation on a Sunday morning and everywhere in between. Listen, worship because the Messiah has come is a way of life. The Messiah is now the center of worship. And, and so in verse 25, excuse me, it's such a bold statement, by the way. Such a strong statement. And this reveals something more about Jesus, that he was more than a prophet. Notice how the story unfolds. First, he's a good Jewish man. What are you doing here? You know, you're Samaria. You don't belong here. Then she perceived him as a prophet, and now we're going to see that she thinks he's something more than that. That's why she responds in verse 25 this way. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
when that one comes, she's, there's anticipation here. She had this kind of idea. I, I read about him. I know there's some kind of Messiah coming. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. And that is when Jesus makes the boldest of all statements. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Wow. You mean you're God in the flesh? And you didn't run over this poor woman? You mean you're God in the flesh and you did not humiliate her? And drag her through the mud? What patience. What compassion. So this woman who first recognized him as just a good old Jewish man, maybe Orthodox probably, then went on to perceive as a prophet, now sees him as something much, much more. In order to clear up all the confusion, Jesus boldly, strongly just comes out and says it, I'm the Messiah. Let me wrap it up by saying this. Jesus says, sinner, I know who you are. I know the lifestyle you live. But I still asked you for water. I knew your lifestyle, and yet I did not walk away from you. I know you did not understand at first, so I was patient with you, and I brought you along in conversation. Why? Because I want to give you eternal life. And beloved, that should be reflected. It can only be reflected, let me say, in the church, his body. May we learn from this passage the compassion the patience and the mercy of Christ. And may we be like sponges so when unbelievers and the dirtiest of unbelievers or the most holiest of the self-righteous, when they come to us, when they touch us, we, what comes from us is the mercy and the compassion and the wisdom of Christ and how to address people where they're at, whether it's a Nicodemus or an immoral lady at a well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful, glorious passage that reflects the majesty and the love, the compassion of our Savior. God, when Peter in 1 Peter tells us to walk and, and follow in Christ's example, I immediately go to this passage of Scripture in John 4. May Jesus' approach to Nicodemus and his approach to the woman at the well be our approach to people. Because you are a God who desires to give eternal life. And we know that your sheep hear your voice. We know, dear God, that those sheep are going to have every, come from every kind of background and lifestyle. And Father, we're not ashamed to share Christ with anybody and everybody. Whoever will listen, Lord God. Give us the wisdom to approach people, the compassion, excuse me, the compassion to approach and the wisdom to talk with them about Christ right where they're at in life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.